Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. By the time you're listening to this, Encuentros Latinx will have just hosted a virtual Good Friday service. If you're connected with our Facebook community, hopefully you saw that and joined us. Our Facebook page is UCC Encuentros Latinx, so give us a like and keep up with all of the other amazing projects in this ministry. I've got another book recommendation for you lovely folks. The Stars and the Blackness Between Them by Janata Petrus. It centers on two black teenage girls, one whose mother in Trinidad forces her to go live in the United States after she's caught kissing a girl from church, and another in the United States who gets diagnosed with a serious illness. Not only is the romance between the two very sweet, but the deep spirituality of the book, I think, would resonate with a lot of you theologically-minded folks. The audiobook in particular enhances the experience of the story, so definitely go check it out. My guest today is one of my old critique partners from my senior seminar creative writing class in college. Poet and educator Angelique Crawford shares the rich tapestry of her blackness rooted in Costa Rica, the Caribbean, the West Indies, and other African diaspora communities that shaped her. She also shares her experiences as an educator, what formed her as a creative writer, and other amazing projects she's a part of. Listen to the end for some spoken word, but for now, let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Can you introduce yourself by giving us your name and pronouns? My name is Angelique Crawford Gibb. I also go by La Negra Speaks, and my pronouns are she, her, and ella. Wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from, your Latinx heritage or all of your heritage? My family is Central American. Um, they are Costa Rican and Panamanian. I identify mostly with my Costa Rican side, though. Wonderful. And what is a good memory that you have maybe about uh, Costa Rica or about your family that you'd like to share with us? I think some of my greatest memories of Costa Rica was probably around the age of nine. I lived there um, and I went to school there and I really was just embedded in the culture in a particular way that um, would not have happened if it wasn't you know, for my aunt coming to get me and really advocating with my mom for me to stay. And, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York primarily. And so the the real difference between what my childhood looked like in Brooklyn versus what it looked like in Limon, Costa Rica were stark. In Limon, Costa Rica, I was definitely a child. And that that is probably some of the happiest memories that I have, right, of being able to be freely a child. And with all that that entails, the good, the bad, los regaños, you know, getting plus that, all of those things, as well as like being loved and cherished and, you know, um, really, really being embedded in my culture in that way. Hmm. So you have really 
you know, from the beginning of your life, you've always had sort of a, a sense of connection to your Latinx identity. What are some other ways that you really feel connected to that? What helps you to really like live into that? So I think it's important to make that kind of clarification that it wasn't necessarily a connection into, and um, I respect Latinx. I do use Latine, mm-hmm. L-A-T-I-N-E. So I'm going to mm-hmm. use that. Yep. Um, it wasn't necessarily a connection to Latine, but more of a connection to being Limonense, mm-hmm. right? And so Limonense, Limon is one of the seven provinces of Costa Rica. It is on the Atlantic coast um, of the Isthmus of Costa Rica. And it has, because of the Afro-Antillians who came from the West Indies or came from the largely Anglophone uh, um, Caribbean islands, they came over to build a railroad. And similarly, they came over to Panama to build a canal. Because they came over to build the railroad and to pick plantains, I grew up in this culture that was very, very much Anglophone Caribbean or Anglophone West Indian mixed in with the culture of Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And so... I don't know that I, Latine was not, the, was not a term that I necessarily embraced, knew or understood, but I did understand that I was Costa Rican. Mm-hmm. And growing up in Brooklyn at the time, the other large population of West Indian, I would say, or actually the term that I use, and I actually got this from a, uh, a young woman named Nicole Ramsey, who's doing her PhD at UCLA. I use this term because it is the one that makes the most sense for me, but as a Central American Caribbean, Mm -hmm. I grew up in spaces around Panamanians and Belizeans. And so there wasn't, and and, and to be clear, Afro, right? Mm -hmm. Afro Panamanians Mm -hmm. and Afro Belizeans and Afro Costa Ricans, Afro Colombians, Afro Colombians from San Andres, Afro Nicaraguans. I grew up in these spaces with Afro uh, descendants who were large in large part from had descendancies from the Caribbean. And so it was this mixture and melding of cultures where I equal parts identified with West Indians and equal parts identified with other Afro descendants who had that narrative, right? I cannot say that I immediately felt connection because at the time in New York, the two most popular groups were Puerto Rican, and honestly, you know, Dominican came later on in my life, but Puerto Rican and Dominican. I can't say that I immediately felt a connection to those two, to those people groups. However, there was overlap. And so, you know, I don't know that there was ever this real Latino, Latine, Latinx identity. But what there was, was this shared Caribbean identity, whether mm-hmm. it was from the actual Caribbean or from the Central American Caribbean. That mm-hmm. is what I knew, and that is what I felt, and never felt disconnected from. Hmm. Yeah, that's that level of nuance. I think is really important, and and something that we've talked about on the show before is sort of the fraughtness of Latinx as a term, and you know everything that that goes into it. I think um, one of my previous guests mentioned an essay written by Alan. Oh gosh, I'm I'm blanking on, on their name, Alan. Lopez or some something like that. Migrant scribble. Migrant scribble. I think his, I think their IG name is Migrant Scribble. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. The and the essay is called uh, "The X in Latinx is a Wound, Not a." Um, Mm-hmm. And I'm blanking on the rest of the title too, but it, I promise I read this uh-huh. essay. It's it's a really uh-huh. it's a really good essay, and, and it it brings up the complications um, with that. And uh-huh. and so on on this show, when I use the term Latinx, that's also 
there's also completely space for people to come on and be like, that's not the term. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. because there are people who cannot live into that term, especially with the history of anti-blackness um, right. and, and how, you know, and we can actually we can actually talk about this a little bit um, because I think from like from my some of my life experience is this sense of um, feeling like I don't count as Latinx. Mm-hmm. And that has hit me, you know, in in one certain way because I navigate the I navigate the world and very often am read as a white person. That's different from how um, how Black Latinx and Afro Latinx, you know, it they they experience that same erasure, but there's also these other oppressions on on top of it. But there is that kind of shared, you know, that one access point of of shared. Um, experience where there's there's this like you're not enough of, to be in this identity and so when I as part of the reason like now that I'm you know living into myself more and like feeling you know more confidence in owning my own identity the the erasure of um of of black Latinx and that and that experience just makes it just makes me be like you know you don't get to celebrate how I look and put me on the, like I'm saying me like metaphorically, you don't get Mm -hmm. to put me on, on the cover of, you know, all these big Latinx Instagram pages and, and whatever. And then at the same time, like reject and not listen to somebody like you, for, for example, like the, like that just like, I want, I want to like fight people (laughs) over that, you know? And so, and honestly, my usage of Latines is out of honor and respect for those who do not identify within, within the binaries that we are subjected to. But Mm -hmm. quite frankly, Latino, Latine, Latines, whatever you want to call it, you know, in the, in the latest um, content that I dropped with Define Black, a lot of what the conversation was with these Afro-Latine women was, was that, or Afro-Sendiente women was that, Quite frankly, I don't want it. I don't want to be. I don't want to be part of it. I never felt a part of it. Didn't feel the necessity to be a part of it. Um, and so even the term Afro Latino, like it, a mí no me vale. Like it doesn't. Mm. It doesn't mean anything to me. I have learned and named myself as Afro Ascendiente mm-hmm. because it is the middle ground that I have been able to find. That you know. That for those who really need to understand that I am a black person from a, with roots in Latin America, then that's what I use it for. But my preferred term, quite frankly, is negra. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause I have been black in every language that I, that I speak. Mm-hmm. And so that's just, I don't, you know, I don't know. And like, I remember hearing, I remember growing up and hearing things like, pues, no dices que eres negra. Don't say that you're negra. You know, say that you're morena. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Negra no es un insulto. It's not an insult mm-hmm. for me. It is very much, it is very much a pride. I, like I, for some, it's like it's more colloquial or it's denigrating, but or it's it's the same as the N word in the United States. And I'm like, no, mm. no, it, it really is it. And again, this is my narrative, and so mm-hmm. I'm careful to highlight that. But for me, negra is is, is about reclamation in many. And in that sense, you could say this similar to the Edward in the United States in, in, in the sense that there are those who use it as reclamation. But it is very much about um, saying that todo lo que es negro no es malo. Everything that is mm-hmm. black is not bad. And so mm-hmm. to say that I am negra is to is to say with power 
right? That I am an Afro-descendant, that I am a Black Latin American, um, and that I cannot tell you where my people descended from in Africa. I don't have that information. And so I have renamed myself as Negra because what it does is honor the skin that I am in by also affirming the fact that that I, there is something that is indeed different with my lived experience as a Latina person. I do not have the same experience that the rest of the world does in terms of Latinidad or Latin. And, you know, this is why um, similarly Alang, Alang um, Lopez, one of the things that he talked about, excuse me, that they talked about, my apologies, one of the things that they talked about was the fact that uh, Latinidad is trash. Mm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. for us, it is. Mm-hmm. It don't mean shit to us. Mm-hmm. Never has, never will. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that is just that that's a really important point of conversation to to get across in this. Like there there is so much there is so much comple- complexity being of people from these regions because so much of the history of brutal colonization, it that is like the center point, uh, the, the Caribbean and uh Latin America and, and the West Indies in, in particular. And just to, it's a constant work to unpack that and to, and to figure out the implications of that. Um, and to, and to try to navigate that in a way that respects people living today and, and that respects ancestors. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's really a lot to, to think about. It's something that I certainly, you know, don't have it all figured out. I don't, I don't think anybody really does, but it's it's a really big undertaking to begin to to pick apart. And this gets into like everything from from the the way that that cultures mix together to especially the way religion mix mix together, which we can definitely uh, yeah you know, get into get into mm-hmm. some depth there. So I, I would love to hear from you about your experiences with spirituality and religion and how those experiences intersect with your identities and, you know, kind of how they feed into each other. What, yeah. what does that richness look like? So the interesting thing about, so we know each other from college. So yeah. We attended a predominantly white institution mm-hmm. that was not evangelical, but was just shy of being evangelical, right? Yeah. Um, like as close as you could get to it without actually being it. Mm-hmm. And so there was a form of Christianity that I was exposed to at Eastern that I had never yet experienced. And it was one that was very white in terms of that there was there was very... So long as you fit a particular mold, there was very little condemnation. It was this kind of freewheeling, freewheeling, um, you know, so long as you fit the criteria, though, right? Mm-hmm. It, so if you did not fit the criteria, then there was no freedom for you. Mm-hmm. But I will say that it was one that was that was very focused on, on the love of God and, 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 and you know, really finding yourself, your, your call and your mission and rah, rah, rah. And conversely, while I grew up in a black in black Christian settings that were both African American and Caribbean, or, or I should say West Indian, there was a level of the remnants of the way that Christianity was used to demoralize, colonize, and, and quite frankly, before we get to colonization, enslave mm-hmm. Afro descendants and indigenous people was I did grow up with that. 
There is no, there is no part of this narrative that says there was not love. There's no part, part of this narrative that says that there was not freedom. These things can all coexist within the same space. But the powers, the, the colonial structures and powers were very readily available in the Christian spaces that I, that I grew up in. And so that meant that at times my Christianity felt condemning. I had to be perfect. I had to, mm. you know, be in a part specific ways. But that was the remnants of, again, the way that Christianity was used to enslave. Now at Eastern, you know, I had people running around listening to secular music and, you know, mm. doing things that getting tattoos and, you know, doing things that mm. were just unheard of in the spaces that I had come from. Mm. So in that quick glimpse, glance, without any introspection, without any investigation. What I internalized for a little bit while I was there, my first year, or maybe my second year, Mm -hmm. was that there was something wrong with the Christianity that I had grown up with. Mm. And so, and there the work, so this is, so now we can take it out of enslavement, but there the work of colonization continued. Mm-hmm. And so now what ended up happening is these hand clapping, foot stomping songs that I had learned, right, that, mm-hmm. that had that had had moved us in ways that had that had taught us about the magnitude of God that has taught that had taught us of God as spirit and not God solely as gendered father were discounted for contemporary songs like, uh, you know, uh, shit, I can't remember them now because I don't even sing them no more. Right? Like, I don't, I, shit, I can't even, like, I can't bring one to, to mind anymore because, but, you know, they were ex- exchanged for that. And so, mm-hmm. and then towards the end of uh, my career there, I, I was hitting the fuck this shit, but I hadn't quite gotten there yet. At this point in my life, I am quickly returning to the Christianity that I knew. But one of the things that I love in these spaces that I am currently inhabiting is, especially with Black church kids, you know, who are, who are Black millennial church kids who are now in our 30s, we're sitting here, we're like, well, real talk, we ain't never really did Christianity the way they did in no way. Hmm. Like, I never did. And yes, we we prayed, but my mother also had a botella de agua florida and was always hitting me with it. Like... Hmm. Right. Like there were things that you put certain things underneath your bed or I wore charms. I wore, you know, things that w- that we deem demonic. Mm-hmm. That at this stage, I'm like, this is this is just how I know God. And so mm-hmm. I have, you know, when I think about my faith and I think about, you know, I was I'm recently part of this community um, with J.T. Perry um, and it's and 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 there's Wednesday night studies, and one of the things that the the, the book that is being read now is Conjure Women, and one of the examples that was given, that, and it has stuck with me, is that we have black people, black Christians, black women in particular, have always been conjurers. They would mm. go into the kitchen and somehow take this much food and multiply it so the whole neighborhood ate. Mm. And you can't tell me that spirit wasn't present. You can't tell me that the divine wasn't in that kitchen making this woman's hands somehow turn this much food in enough. And there was always seconds. It wasn't like you just had enough. There was enough and there was more to go back. And so when I think about that, 
But I think about my Christianity now. I don't know that I can call myself a Christian in any of the ways that 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 I used to. I still fuck with Jesus, mm-hmm. but I fuck with Jesus with the understanding that Jesus is delivered to us in the body of a cishet man because that is what they could comprehend. Was mm-hmm. Jesus cishet? Baby, I have <laughs> questions. I got some questions, but I'm not, that's another conversation for another day. And mm-hmm. I don't have time to, I'm not fighting with nobody. Look, what mm-hmm. I'm saying is my understanding of this, of this brown Jesus is very much seen in the eyes of black women. And so mm-hmm. my faith now very much is like I met God within myself and I loved her fi- fiercely, Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And says, okay, Shanghai, right? Like these are things like, so I never in reality followed a Christianity that really, in terms of the pure sense of how I, how the women in my life manifested it, it was never a Christianity in any way, shape or form that looked like white Christianity. Mm-hmm. It gave the veneer so that people could keep doing what they were doing. But the shout, the dance, the step, the hand clap, the wail. And for me, I didn't grow up in spaces that necessarily shouted. That mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily my tradition, but I was always adjacent to it. But you know what I did grow up with? I grew up with the whale Hmm. and black women would, would sit at that altar and they would wail and they would wail and they would wail and they would do something called tarrying. Somebody would tarry with you while you wailed. And so there would be a sister that, or or, or, who would be there next to you, just rubbing your back as you poured out, as you Hmm. poured out. And then they would rub your back. And the older saints, the older woman would say, all right, baby, when you get up off this floor, you're not going to deal with this no more. Hmm. And I feel that that is mm. what my Christianity looks like. So mm. now as an educator, that's what I do. Okay, baby, mm. sit on this floor and I'm going to rub your back. Cause when you get up off this floor, you're not going to deal with this no more. But, mm. but there was space for that. And mm. so now when I think of my Christianity, I see it through that lens. Well, now when I think of scripture, bless the Lord, all my soul and forget not their benefits. That's not about, that's not about it's just not couched in the way that it was presented to me. Bless mm. the Lord. I'm going to bless the Lord, oh, my soul. And I'm going to be on this floor and I'm going to wail. But when I get up, I'm not going to forget that I've been here before. And God has met me here in this place. Mm. I had read somewhere recently, again, like these, when I think about my faith, it is so deeply enmeshed in black womanhood that there's just no way to, to divorce it. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I think about it, you know, I had read somewhere that and I, I'm blanking on it right now, but that everywhere in the Bible, when you look at women in the Bible, God always draws near to them. Right. All mm-hmm. the other prophets had to go and, and meet God. But in the Bible, because these women were brown and they were marginalized and they didn't mm-hmm. have time to leave tending whatever they were tending to go have this epic mountaintop experience with God. So God met them where they mm-hmm. were. When I think about my faith, I think about black women who I see and my Christianity, who I have seen God meet where they are every single time. Mm. A long answer, but it's my truth. It's it's a great it's a great answer and yeah and since we did go to the same college, um, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about reflecting on my own experiences there too, and just this. This disillusionment that I have with that 
institution yeah. now. Um, yeah. I was actually, I was actually just um, having a conversation with uh, one of our other uh, classmates there. I think, I think she's actually maybe a, a year or two below us, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, Angel, did you, did you know Angel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So she had said something on, on Twitter kind of about, about, but not really. I mean, it was about right. Eastern, but you know, she but didn't explicitly, yeah, she didn't explicitly name it. And, you know, just, just about how they preach a good game of social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's what you get to a point and you kind of realize that it, there's a shallowness to it. And it's weird for, for me because on the one hand, I had professors and experiences there at that college that planted the seeds for mm-hmm. my deconstruction and reconstruction of, of my own faith. But at the same time, by, by the time I graduated, it, it didn't take too long for me to see that there was a stopping point to their idea of social justice and who it was for. Well, um, and 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 even when we talk about social justice, we have to talk about the decolonization of social justice, right? Mm-hmm. Until the the white messiah is removed from the your framework of social justice, then I can't actually hear anything you have to say. And by you, I'm talking about honestly white Christianity. I don't mm-hmm. give a fuck what you have to say until you remove white messiah and mm-hmm. white supremacist ideals from whatever social justice. Oh my gosh! Even while I was there, I used to hate to go on the website, and there would be all these children surrounded by someone on their latest mission trip. Mm, and I yeah, like, this is some fuck shit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And it's it's just wild, you know. Now thinking back on it, and uh, you know, it's it's a lot. And sometimes, I mean, at, at least for me, again, it's it's like it's so weird how the same the same space that is so entrenched in everything problematic with Christianity can also be the space where some of that were the seeds of upturning that for some people uh, get planted. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think mm-hmm. that that is what to me is so intriguing about liberation theologies, you know, wherever they come from, whether it's, you know, the, the first thing that was called liberation theology that came out of South America or um, other iterations that we've seen over the years, black liberation theology with, mm-hmm. uh, with Dr. James Cone, um, mm-hmm. And queer liberation theology, feminist liberation theology, all, all of these contextualized liberation theologies that come out of marginalized communities that in some way they they do that deconstruction or decolonization in their different ways that they do that. But at the same time, they are born from the very thing that was oppressive. And sometimes when I look at that, on the one hand, on the surface, it can seem really messed up that that happens. But then on the other hand, from like kind of a like a spiritual, you know, perspective, it's it's like it's like, thank God that God is able to move and, you know, move and not be in solely in this oppressive thing that that all the empires over the centuries made it be. And I think I know that that is where that is where I've always seen the divine. That is where I named mm-hmm. God. The fact that that Eastern even was a place where I was able to leave with the foundations for deconstructing, and mm-hmm. as you said, the reconstruction. That is evidence that the divine exists. Mm-hmm. I don't care what anyone says because in many ways that that space perpetuated, unbeknownst to me, violences that I would later have to unpack. 
Mm-hmm. And for others, it was not. But again, evidence of the divine for me, evidence of God, evidence that God draws near to those who, who they love. I find the fact that I was still able to get some of the foundational tools that I needed to be able to deconstruct the, the, the very things that were oppressing me. And I think, you know, I think it's when I think about the theologies that we name as liberation theologies, I, you know, I don't necessarily see them as attached to the greater oppressive force so much as I see them as the actual iteration of what God intended for the mm-hmm. manifestation of Christianity to actually look like, mm-hmm. right? Like that is, yeah. that was the actual intent. Mm-hmm. What what that is what salvation was always supposed to be in terms of our understanding of it. But mm-hmm. I'm also not so naive as to believe that because we are human and because within all of us exists the ability to colonize, exists the, uh, the ability to abuse power. I am not naive in, in believing that these liberation theologies, though they are most reflective of what I believe was the intention of salvation, I am still very clear that they can, they too can also miss the mark and miss the nu- miss nuances that need to happen. And again, you know, we take it to Dr. Kinley Crenshaw and intersectionality. This is why the mm-hmm. theory of intersectionality, even as we are unpacking and deconstructing and understanding faith, must be applied at every single turn. The work of colonization is ongoing. No one arrives to, you never arrive at it because we have been mm-hmm. living under these oppressive systems for so long that we are not like to undo it in one full breath is impossible. Mm-hmm. So recognizing Holding space for the ways that these theologies have helped and holding space for the ways that they are, they must be built upon and must be nuanced so that they do not ha- perpetuate harm is something mm-hmm. that is, that, that is, it's where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. And listen, I don't got no answers. I'm not at one. I am right. working this out as I go and trying my best not to, you know, repeat the same errors. I, mm-hmm. this is tangential, but I, I, I'll give this story to, to kind of give context to mm-hmm. my, my current framework. My friend and I were laughing about our parents and like the things that they would say to us. And you might've seen me post this. And I was like, I, I think so. Yeah. But go my, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, my, my mom would say, you want a bitch lick. What is a bitch lick? And why are you giving it to me? I don't understand. But it's like she's like, you, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna pop you the well, the well, like you know, especially when you come to la casa when we get to the house, right? Mm-hmm. All of these things that I was like, sis, you are unstable in all your ways, right? Mm. And now as an educator, some days there are days when I am with my students and I'm like, Whoa, I want to give you a bitch lick because I now understand mm-hmm. what a bitch lick is. However. The work of deconstruction, the work of freedom and liberation is looking at why that is my response mm. and deciding to pivot from that response, despite the fact that these children want to send me to jail, right? Pivoting mm. from that response, but it is still recognizing that that, that response is there and mm. that it was, it was built into my framework. And so mm-hmm. I, in the effort of creating a freer, you know, that's why when Gen, Gen Z starts getting, getting, getting a little wild, the millennials are like, ah, <laughs> cut, cut that shit out. Cause we are here trying to make sure you free. Just cut, cut, stop it. You know, but still wanting to create those frameworks and, and for myself and for my, my generation of students. And if I ever have children creating frameworks that allow them to be free. But mm-hmm. again, still recognizing that the ability to oppress, to abuse power exists in me because it was shown to me as the only way to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, something else about um, about our time at Eastern, too, is is that 
some of the ways, and I know some of the ways that you've articulated a lot of your experiences is through writing. And you, you and I, um, you know, I was really lucky to be able to be in the same senior seminar uh, class as you. We for our senior seminar in in a creative writing degree, there was a semester where you spend you spend the whole semester working on an extended uh, fiction project, whatever that may be. And we were split into into small groups within the class and you and I were in the same critique group for that semester. So I would love to hear from you about creative writing in, in your life and how you came to that as an artistic outlet for you and what the creative word does for you. So it's such a, a long and varied tale, but because it, it, it comes alive at so many different spaces. But I think the very first piece I wrote was when I was 11 and I was, someone had really, really hurt my feelings. And I wrote this piece called Speak. And I was like, you can only speak what you know and know what you speak from the depths of your heart. There is a fear, a fear that demands that you speak. So you speak the words of your heart, speak the words of your mouth. You let your spirit roam and your voice be known. I was 11 and I wrote mm-hmm. it um, because someone had really hurt my feelings. And I think that I learned that poetry could be a way to express myself. But even before that, I remember being exposed to Langston Hughes' Crystal Stare, um, excuse me, Mother to Son. And in the piece, she says, life ain't been no Crystal Stare for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember also reading that piece in seventh grade. And for the first, because of the way that I read it, the entire room got quiet. So Somewhere around between the eight, between fourth grade and middle school, I learned that if I wrote, the parts of me that felt silenced could 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 speak. And then you know I grew up in the era of the neo soul, Jill Scott, India Ari, spoken word artist, mm-hmm. and so that there there was a resurgence. And so my teen years were spent, you know, listening to rushing home to watch you know, the Lyric Lounge or whatever it was called on BT at the time, you know, because I just really enjoy poetry. And then at 14, I wrote a piece called Show Me Your Face, Lord. Um, again, coming out of deep angst and really asking, you know, for God to just be present. So honestly, my writing came from a place of angst and, and, and pain. And now here we are some 20 odd years later, and I am attempting to figure out how to write creatively, not built in angst and pain. But mm-hmm. it has been the place where I have learned to be the most honest and the most truthful and the most authentic. And so I think that, and that authenticity is what draws people to my work, not because it is, you know, the most prolific, nuanced shit you'll ever hear, but because when you hear when I'm writing, which we're hearing is my heart, and quite frankly, you know, as I'm speaking to you, I would describe them as my own personal psalms. They are my psalms and they are my prayers to God, asking that a that a God that I believe is benevolent and loving would see me and 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 hopefully breathe life onto the words that I'm uttering. Hmm. Does that does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah that that makes perfect sense. I mean, I I, I get it. I'm I'm a writer too, and I and I think anybody who has tapped into creating and creativity can get that in a sense. My uh, my pastor at my church, she says that everybody has an artistic outlet that is, you know, for them. Mm-hmm. It's just that some people, it takes a long time for them to to discover. 
Mm-hmm. Um, she does she does pottery mm-hmm. and some other types of artistic work as well. And just ever since I heard her say that the first time, it's just something that has stuck with me. Um, mm-hmm. Now, of course, like for me, I found my creative outlet very early. I'm one of those where I was five years old, or you know, just mm-hmm. as soon as I knew how to write with a pen and a paper, mm-hmm. I was writing stories. Mm-hmm. So I didn't necessarily have the experience of you know, oh, I am not creative. I'm not artistic. Like that, that just wasn't something that I went through per se, but I know so many people who, who believe that. And then just from a, like from a spiritual perspective, it's, it's Mm -hmm. like we were created by a creator. So how could we not be creative? Every single one of us. Um, And it's interesting that you say that because I still struggle with believing that I am a writer. mm. Um, just because I'm surrounded by so many good writers. And so Mm. who makes a judgment of what is good or bad, right? But Mm -hmm. that is one of the hardest things. But going back to what you said about the creator, my mother, when she was naming me, attempted to name me after my father. And the long and short of that was that my father and her relationship dissolved and I no longer had a relationship with him. But I remember this happened while I was at Easter and happened on the day of my birthday. I had been sitting working on something and I felt something urged me to like look up my name my name I've never really found it in its exact form but when I found it it said messenger of God Hmm. and I think you know I remember like hearing so clearly your mother thought that she named you after your dad she didn't she named you after me And this name was the name that I, that I, that I gave her for you. Mm. And I know that I know that my mama didn't know that. Like I know that Mm. for a fact. And I think, you know, for a long time, the first few lines out of John were always my favorite. And in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That became, and Mm. so I think somewhere over time, my mother had, with the gifts that God had given her prophetically spoken, this creativity, this writing, this word over me, regardless of whether or not she even knew that that's what she was doing. But I am like every other quintessential prophet in the Bible weeping and like, Oh my God, life Mm -hmm. is terrible. I don't know if I'm called to do this. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's the place where I'm at. I don't doubt my abilities as a writer. I don't doubt my creativity. I I just don't always know if it is the vehicle that, that, (laughs) that uh, that that most people will see you know Hmm. yeah that's that's interesting that you say that because I mean at least from my perspective like I know you first and foremost as a writer because Mm -hmm. of the context that you know that Mm -hmm. we that we met Mm -hmm. and got to know each other and you know of course that that brings up ideas of there's all kinds of ways that writers can get imposter syndrome or feel mm. like they're not valid, whether it's, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm self-published or like, I don't like, there's all these yeah. different parameters that people, you know, put on themselves and, and put on, on each other. And, you know, I like to just cancel that because it, right. if it's something, you know, if it's something that's a part of you and it's something that you, that you take seriously and that you do, well, then that's, that's what you are. Like, I, I don't even like the term aspiring writer or, yeah. cause I'm like, no, like, don't, I mean, certainly yeah. don't call me that don't and don't yeah. call yourself that because if you're if you're doing it then you're not aspiring absolutely but um so even though I know you as a writer there is so much other work that you that you do and I would just love to hear about 
this other work that you do, I know that you you teach and there's a new a new project that you just launched. I just I want to hear all about this this work that you're doing. So I am an educator. I ironically as part of my I, reclamation is not the word, but as part of mm-hmm. my resolve to reconcile all of my identities, about six, almost going on seven years now, I took a position as a Spanish teacher, mm-hmm. um, which as a heritage Spanish teacher at that. And initially when my friend invited me to come take the position, I was like, hell no, I don't speak no Spanish. And they were like, yes, you do. You speak worked, better than me. <laughs> I, worked, I know, but you know. <laughs> The, the levels of like judgment again, right? Mm, like this kind mm-hmm. of media, yeah, yeah. This kind mm-hmm. of living in this space of, of it is not perfect. So because it is not, again, the weight of living under colonized, like colonial languages, I should say. Mm-hmm. The weight of living under that means that you never feel enough of, of either one of them if they're not perfect. And so I never felt like it was perfect. I didn't want to do it. But I ended up teaching heritage Spanish to um to kids in the DMV and I think that that was probably some of the most prolific ministerial work that I could have ever done. I don't know that they remember the lessons about conjugations and lessons about adjectives and the lessons mm-hmm. about reading in Spanish but they do remember the lessons I gave them on identity and what mm-hmm. it means for them to be to still say no you are Latine and you can mm-hmm. claim that and you can claim that identity or or the pushes and challenges that I gave them in terms of saying, when I ask you, what is what do you believe it means for you to be Latino? Please don't just tell me about the food and the music, right? Mm. Along the road, I created a course called the Afro-Latin Diaspora, where I spend one, two, one semester, well, two semesters every year with a different group of about 25 to 30 kids and teach them as much as I can the breadth of, and honestly, it is a just a, because the, the, the history is lengthy, Um of Afro-descendants in Latin America. And it often helps begin the kind of work of deconstruction of anti-Blackness within Latin America for many of my students. At this point, I have now taught that class about 10 times. And I am, it's probably the thing that I'm most proud or proudest about. I shifted positions from primarily being a, a heritage edu- Spanish educator to now working to some extent with diversity and inclusion in terms of what it looks like for um, diversity, inclusion, and equity within education at my school. So mm-hmm. now working as their resource support specialist and a fancy word for, you know, case planning these babies and helping them be okay. So that's what I do professionally speaking. Recently, a, a project that is dear to my heart, it is, uh, I did it with Life Escobar and Agosa, oh, I'm forgetting Agosa's last name from Define Black and Awake Storytelling. And about five years ago, the, in the first video of me went viral talking about my Afro-Latin identity. And it went viral in a way that we were like, oh, shit, okay. (laughs) Y'all got feelings. And it keeps going viral. Like every two years, a new generation, it recently went viral on TikTok. So Define Black meets speaking about what it meant to be Afro-Costa Rican in New York in the 90s. Um, and so I, I, I joined again with Define Black to create this this new project is called um, Naming Ourselves in Love and Liberation, uh, a love story to Black, Latin American women and femmes. It just was like it, I got together with some of the most the, the dopest Black American, excuse me, Black Latin American women that I knew around in 2017. And we got together and we put this, we just sat, we were at Airbnb in a hot ass living room and just kind of talked about some of the things that are trending now, right? Like um, about whether or not we wanted to even be a part of Latinidad, if it was something mm-hmm. that we wanted. And we were like, nah, yo, I'm good. <laughs> like, 
Um, we talked about what it means to be black, what it means to be black, like an American, and what it means for us to say that we are black as opposed to Afro-Latina. And that there is mm-hmm. no judgment for anyone that calls themselves Afro-Latina, Latinx. That's your business. However, what must be nuanced is there are, as we talk about Latinidad, as we talk about anti-blackness, as we talk about these things as systems of oppression, we cannot diverge from the fact that the casta system, Sistema Casta, was a, a system of racial hierarchy that existed in Latin America and remains fully intact to this day, mm-hmm. right? Like, it remains fully intact down mm-hmm. to the ways that we refer to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Like, as mestizo, mulata, negro, negra, moreno, like, mm-hmm. sambo, right? Like, nothing mm-hmm. has shifted. So they, it remains fully intact, fine, and, and functioning at its utmost functionality. So while there are many of many Afro-Latino people, Afro-Latine people, Afro-Latinx people who are coming into this understanding of Blackness, I celebrate that, applaud that, and love it. Truly, I do. And there, there are also, and I hold space for the fact that there are also those of us who we've been Black, Black since birth. And I call us the Been Black crew. Mm. we've been black in every country we ever live in. Ain't, there ain't never been no racial ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not fighting with anybody who wants to claim Afro-Latinidad. That's fine. But what, but we, there needs to be some distinction and some nuance and some conversation because your lived experience as, as a possibly racially ambiguous Afro-Latinidad is vastly mm-hmm. different from my experience as a negra. Mm-hmm. Very different. And that mm-hmm. we need to hold space for that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I and I am able to hold space for it because I I have students who are coming into blackness and I want to be able to make space for that. If you had asked me six, seven years ago, if I would be helping some of my Dominican babies understand what it means for them, for, for them to claim and to be proud of their blackness, I would have said, hell no. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I never thought this would be the work that I would be doing, but it is. And, and I hold space for that. I am also holding space for the women, black women. Afro-descendant women and men who have lived their entire existence as Black and have faced racial discrimination and anti-Blackness in every country they are in. There is no question whether I'm in Peru or whether I'm in in Brooklyn, whether I'm in Puerto Rico or whether I'm in Paraguay. Mm -hmm. I exist as an Afro-descendant visibly with no ambiguity and will experience discrimination as a result. Mm -hmm. Yes. That was tangential, mm-hmm. but yes. <laughs> you know, circling back, define black, <laughs> naming ourselves in love and liberation. It is a, a black love story to to Latin American women and families, and it's great. So you can find it at Define Black Us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So it's Define Black Us. It's one word. Define Black Us. But if you can't find that, mine's might be a little easier. You can always find me at La Negra Speaks everywhere y'all don't really know how to use the twitters so <laughs> i have it but i don't know how to use it um i'm learning how to use the tiktoks but i am most i'm most busy on instagram um but yeah that's where you can find that content um and i'll drop the links for you if you want to drop it in the podcast space too yeah yeah we will definitely have um the links in the description on our podbean website where the episode <laughs> streams and Yes. So you will, everyone will have a chance to check out those <laughs> links. And, you know, I think for like, from my perspective, it makes so much sense to me that you are an educator and that you ended up in this, in this early work that you did with being a heritage Spanish speaker and, and teaching those students, because I, I one 
experience with you that is just really prevalent in my mind is you may or may not remember this, but uh, but this is the way that I I remember it. I think one time we were we might have been talking about like. Latinx stuff, although we weren't using that, that terminology at mm-hmm. the time. And I think you uh, you had invited me at one point to Eastern's... Um, Latinos Unidos. Yeah, Latinos Unidos. And mm-hmm. I think I, I couldn't make the meetings because I had, I was, I had stuff going on that night. But like mm-hmm. also when, when you had invited me, it was, it, it was this, this mixture of feelings of like, am I allowed to be in that space? Because Mm -hmm. at at that time, at that point in my life, I was at the very, very early stages of kind of coming to terms with the self erasure that I was very easily able to do because whiteness said, hey, like, just let me take you, basically. Mm -hmm. And then I was just at the beginning stages of unraveling that and just realizing how messed up that that really is Mm -hmm. and so that that memory of of that invitation from you stuck in my mind as like a seed of like you know you're you're valid and this is a space that you can come into even Mm -hmm. though like it it took me it still took you know so much work to really get over these internalized messages that I had of that you know you're not you're not allowed to claim this or you, you can't claim this. So, you know, to, to me, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, like, of course you would find yourself in, in that work and in a different way with, you know, with, with your students, but this, this work of helping people planting those seeds so that folks can come into the fullness of, mm-hmm. of their identities, especially identities that have been stripped from them because of colonization. Like that is healing work mm-hmm. to, to be doing. So I just want to like be on the show here re- recording and like name that, 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 that happened. And thank you for that work. Yeah. And I'm so happy for, um, for all of your, your students who are benefiting from you because I, I know they are. And, and I know that they're going to take Whatever it is that you've given them, they're they're just they're gonna take that with them. And some of the things that you post are so are so funny. And and este frío, like the one <laughs> I read, I read that whole conversation. That was that was so that made me laugh. And I was like, I was like, I know we have all like, especially up in Chicago and like New York, and we're all and where all the gente live. And I'm like, I'm like, and like why that line made me laugh. <laughs> no, like, why don't you have on clothes? I don't understand. It's cold. Um, yeah, I mean, and that was, you know, that was probably one of, um, you know, student of mine left the DMV area, ended up in West Virginia, well, didn't, left the portion of the DMV that she was with me, ended up in Virginia, and really, you know, had to, and was at a predominantly white high school where she had not been before and was faced with the challenge of, mm-hmm. of, of you leveraging her white Latino-ness to support black black women and she did and mm-hmm. I couldn't have been prouder and so you know she talked about how it made her you know being in that space at first made her uncomfortable and then she was like but these girls are here in these booty shorts and este frio and I'm I'm <laughs> not me not me Miss Crawford and you know that was like the joy of my you know because honestly sometimes you don't realize they're paying attention <laughs> And then they bring it back to you in the most fascinating ways, like sandwich in between. Like there was a deep prolific moment. Right. And then it was like, and I stay real. And I was like, okay, girl, <laughs> you know, so, you know, there's just, I, I have, it is my pleasure to teach 
junior seniors as they are moving into college because I feel like if you can catch them at that point then there then you do have some help in what they choose to engage with when they go to college mm-hmm. and I tell them all the time walk in fuck shit up walk out go to these schools disrupt these systems get what you need and then leave because you don't owe them nothing they owe you mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. yeah well I would love to bring this all to a head by inviting you to share any poem any any creative piece that you have for us and and folks I don't want to preface this too much because oh, I just please I just don't want you <laughs> I just I just want Listen, I am not mincing my words when I say that hearing Anjali perform her work is a blessing. Anybody who has heard her spoken word, has been in the same room, has felt the energy of her words would know that. And so I have no idea what she might bring to us. That's that's part of the the surprise, the, the blessing of, <laughs> of the spirit. But you know, here on on the show, we want to bring life to all narratives. And this is one of my favorite ways of being able to do that, asking folks to share their creative written word. So, Anjali, what piece do you have for us? What are you feeling? I have two. I'll give you one from college. And then I'll give you one that's a little bit more recent that I wrote for one of my first students who became one of my babies. Sounds amazing. Let me start with this one. Let me pull them up. Here we go. So this first one, um, I wrote it in undergrad, but it it is definitely a big part of my narrative and continues to be. And it's called Crossings. And I love it because the... What I would, I guess I would call it as our ancestral home, but that feels a little bit longer than it is mm-hmm. in terms of its existence. But the home where every single person in my family has passed through at some point is called, it's, it's by crossings. And so it's by, and the crossings is where the two railroad lines would cross. And so my uncle, whenever I call him, I will say, I'll say them, baquetraque, and he'll say, linea real, right? So backtrack means like the, the, it was the back, it was the, it was where the trains crossed the first, the the front track and the back track, but we lived by the back track. And then he would say Lina Real because he was like, that was the real, that was the actual line that did the work. And so out of that came this piece called Crossings. Before I crossed eternity into life, they passaged through oceans and memories. They lived on the shores of West Africa and died under the palm trees of Jamaica. They crossed into new life and ate the bitterness of sorrow. My mothers refused death for my birth. My fathers subdued pride for my survival. I ate truth and became their griot, one trained to retell the history of a village. I live so that I might cross into past, quicken presence, and rewrite mistaken future. Before I crossed eternity into life, they passed from the palm trees of Jamaica to the railroads of Limón, Costa Rica. 
They crossed into new life and ate the hope of beginnings. They altered their patterns of phonetic rhythms to speak free tongues. My grandmothers cooked Africa in Spaniard languages. My grandfathers built railroad tracks and spoke Jamaica in verse. I suckled freedom and became their poet. One trained to prophesy to cultures. I live so that I might cross between languages to tell a two-sided story and rewrite a one-sided history. Before I crossed eternity into life, they passed it from the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica to the Caribbean concrete of Flatbush, Brooklyn. They crossed into new life and savored the spices of new nations. My aunts laundered clothes in ceramic tubs and lime dried in the cold of winter. My uncles labored in hotels and spoke in dialects of Spanish and Patois. I chased identity and became their inquisitor, one trained to find accuracy. I live so that I might cross continents and countries, find my diaspora, and finally be free. Crossing. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> and this last piece that I'll do for you is called Autumn. And it is about one of my, my babies. And she is aware that I've written this for her. Autumn. I love this baby first. Because her face held black girl real, truthfully. Like she had been around the world, searched its depth, and found that there was no good in it. Like she knew that the caged bird song was not but folly. Its melody but an opiate for the ignorant, the silly, the ones who were too foolish not to hope. My baby Autumn had been here before. And how could I not immediately fall in love with her disdain? With her silent dreams and baleful stares, how could I not hug her to my side and love her like her mama should? How could I not squeeze her face and extol its beauty? There wasn't no way not to love her. See, before we met, I knew that she would be kin. Because Black girls like her with razor sharp eyes and incendiary tongues are meant for strong love. Love like resurrection and Holy Ghost power. Love like dry bones living. Love like I'll wade through the water so God can trouble them for you. Autumn rain, my first baby. I love her still. Autumn rain, my first baby. Everybody ain't able. Autumn rain, my first baby. I love her still. Everybody ain't able to hold the strength in her smile. Autumn. My first baby, I love her still. Everybody ain't able to hold the strength in her smile. Hmm. Fantastic. I'm still waiting for your like 300 page uh, collection ah! to drop or, you know, <laughs> you know, so- something like that. I mean, I mean, I mean, truly, you know, I like, yes, I'm doing my thing, but I really, I think back to that class we were in and, yeah. and I, I think there was so much talent there. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, tr- there truly, there truly was. And I desperately want some of us to make it. Um, I know I'm trying to make it happen for me. And I love seeing the success that you've had when that video of you went viral. I was like, yeah. Oh my God. I was like, I was like, yes, uh, that's correct. <laughs> that, that, sh- that should be happening. But it was it was super exciting seeing that, you know, I, and I, I just hope for, yeah, just for everybody in, in that class that we were in, you know, who who is in any way, you know, trying to pursue this work of creative yeah. writing as, as a business or whatever that means as, as a right. business. That, that honestly, happens. we just want to be able to create and eat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. that's. That's all. That's all we're trying to do. I just want to create and keep the lights on. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) 
same. I'm, I mean, gosh, ugh, capitalism, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> always, always. And deep side uh, capitalism. <laughs> oh, yeah. My, my goodness. Well, Anjali, this has been a pleasure of a conversation to have. Um, I'm so glad. <laughs> we love to see it on the show. I hope folks listening to this um, also get something out of it. Make sure to follow Anjali and all of the exciting things that she is doing on Instagram and just to keep doing what we're doing. All right. So yeah. thank you for coming on the show. Por siempre pa'lante. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.